0: We're talking baseball today on The Morning Show, and I'm very, very excited to be uh, making my first acquaintance with Rocco Constantino, who is a sports historian as well as director of athletics at uh, Santa Barbara City College, and um, he has written extensively on baseball for a number of different publications and online websites and so on. And uh, his first book was 50 Moments that Defined Major League Baseball. Uh, His latest book is called Beyond Baseball's Color Barrier, the story of African Americans in Major League Baseball, past, present, and future. The book tells the story not just of Jackie Robinson so memorably becoming the first black major leaguer in 1947, but something of the history of blacks before Jackie Robinson in Major League Baseball. Yes, there is a story there. And the story of the black players that followed in the wake of Jackie Robinson and also kind of the curious situation involving the presence of black players uh, in the present day. A presence, at least numerically, that is not nearly as extensive as it once was. And he explores some of the reasons why we might be seeing that. And of course, along the way, we are meeting a, a whole host of fascinating, gifted uh, baseball players, and also uh, some of the people who were really instrumental in, uh, in black players uh, eventually, finally, making their way into uh, the major leagues. And uh, we also meet some of the people who were fervently opposed to such a thing and remained very skeptical Uh, some staunch opponents of of integration of baseball until the day they died. That is part of this story as well, and I appreciate the fact that this story is told in such comprehensive fashion. The book is published by Roman and Littlefield, again titled Beyond Baseball's Color Barrier, the story of African-Americans in Major League Baseball, past, present, and future. And Rocco Constantino, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thanks, Greg. It's great great to be on. It's an honor to be able to talk to you. and You, you summed it up perfectly. I think I need to uh, hire you as my publicist <laughs> there. That was a, a great summary that, that you gave. That was perfect.
0: Great. So uh, I wonder if anything in particular want, m- prompted you to, to want to take the time that I'm sure it took uh, to so meticulously research this book. Uh, did, did anything in particular make you want to devote your time and energy to this undertaking?
1: Uh, it was always something that I was interested in, especially the Negro Leagues. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey and, uh, you know, northern New Jersey, where there's a, a rich history of, of Negro League baseball. And I even played high school baseball in, in Hinchcliffe Stadium in Patterson, where, you know, decades earlier, the New York Black Giants or Black Yankees played. Um, so I, I've had a long, long interest in that. Uh, the way the book came about was, you know, you mentioned my first book, uh, 50 Moments That define Major League Baseball. And um, that did pretty well. And, and Roman and Littlefield reached out to me at, in October of 2019 and said they'd like some kind of book about, you know, African-Americans and Major League Baseball. And I started bouncing around different ideas in my head and, you know, why don't we maybe look at before Jackie Robinson or why don't we look at the the trends of participation? And eventually I landed on, why don't we do a comprehensive history, Uh, go back as far as I possibly could, um, incorporate that that, uh, Sabre demographics trends um, and like, you know, one-stop shop for for as as much of a history as I could put together in, in 230 pages. So you know, I went back. Yeah, you know, wrote my proposal up, and and they they loved it, and we went forward with the book. And it said goes back to 1879 to the the first legal African American that that played in the game, and goes all the way through today and looks looks towards the future.
0: So, one of the things that is kind of intriguing about your book and its scope is that one thing that we read a little bit about, but actually not all that much about, and understandably, is we really don't learn all that much about the Negro Leagues. I mean, that is not the primary focus of this book. This is the story, as the subtitle says, of of, of African-American players in the major leagues. Um, that being said, obviously, the Negro Leagues are are a crucial element in all of this, and it's not that they are entirely ignored. But could you just say a quick word about that particular story—that is of the Negro Leagues—and how that relates to this particular story?
1: Yeah, and that was a challenge that I had, and and uh, again, that's a great observation. Uh, the challenge I had with a couple topics in the book was there's there's so much uh, breath uh, de- uh, breath. And so many layers to, to something like the Negro Leagues that it there's it's tough to get into all the details about it. So they absolutely play you know play a role in the history of, of African Americans in Major League Baseball because they were excluded. Um, I was you know happy with the way I was able to incorporate them by using the um, the Wendell Smith Pittsburgh Courier study. Uh, Wendell Smith was a sports writer. And in 1939, he was a sports writer for the Pittsburgh Courier, which is a African-American publication out of Pittsburgh. Um, and in 1939, Wendell Smith surveyed every single team in the National League and asked them their opinions, the players and managers. You know, what is your opinion? Why can't black players play? Are they good enough? Which ones are the best ones that you've seen? Um, so by I you know, dedicated a whole chapter to the, the 1939 Pittsburgh Courier study and what was interesting to me a couple of things were interesting to me about that was first of all Wendell Smith was was you know so respected and the people he asked weren't just you know everyday kind of guys they were Hall of Famers Gabby Hartnett, Dizzy Dean, Pie Trainer, Honus Wagner you know uh, just every every week he published something with new Hall of Famers giving their opinions. Um, so that was great that he was able to reach out to them. But the answers that the major league players gave, they asked them, you know, who are the best players? Who could have done well in major league baseball? And it wasn't, you know, of course, everybody was saying Satchel Page and Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell. But the variation in the number of players, I mean, there were 20 to 30 different players listed where those current white major leaguers were saying, you know, guys like, Sam Bankhead or Oscar Charleston, Martin Dihigo, you know Biz Mackey. All these guys could have came into the major leagues and played. So there was there were so many answers um, to that, and it was unanimous at the time. It was there wasn't one major leaguer that really spoke up and said no, they shouldn't be playing. You know, they all say they would accept them as teammates. The managers all said, "I would take them on my team. They'll help us win if they're good enough. They could play." But you know, that all of that responsibility of keeping them out largely laid with the owners. Um, it was interesting. Judge Landis, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, wasn't mentioned at all in that survey. Um, the owners all lied on the owners. So that was another interesting aspect to me. So that was kind of my way of incorporating the Negro Leagues. I said so much details and such a great, great history. Um, and then the other way I incorporated the Negro Leagues was interviewing uh, Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Hall of Fame, which was such a highlight for me.
0: Right. I want to actually jump beyond the beginning of the book. We'll we'll backtrack in in, in just a little bit. But I think what's really interesting uh, when we when we look at this extensive survey that that was done by the Pittsburgh Courier, um, that all of these white players had such knowledge of and appreciation for many of the the great black players of that same era and one of the ways in which they in fact knew about these great black players was because of this thing known as barnstorming and Mm -hmm. uh you you take a, a good portion of the book uh to talk about this phenomenon which of course doesn't happen anymore at all and unless you uh learn something of baseball history, uh, you're likely not to have any idea uh, what this is about. Explain to our listeners what barnstorming was and how it ended up being uh, uh, an arena in which whites and blacks uh, could play together uh, in ways that would otherwise not have been permitted at that time.
1: Yeah, that was great. And barnstorming, there were, um, you know, a couple of different, uh, I guess, barnstorming circuits are more than a couple. There were a number. But uh, there were the African-American teams, the Negro League teams who would go around and, and play um, play against local people. So they'd go against, you know, it would be a group of, you know, maybe Satchel Page and a, a bunch of African-American guys. and They'd go town to town and play against local athletes and, and local semi-pro teams and, and things like that. Um, and then there were also – times where you know dizzy dean had a famous barnstorming uh team so dizzy dean would get his team together satchel page would get his team together and they'd go and they'd be these big events uh and they'd do some traveling and and play competition against each other so those were kind of the two main forms of barnstorming uh and they were incredibly popular both of them were uh and, and you're exactly right that um they were popular it was it was not something that could happen on a major league field but in the off season the other you know, teams would travel to um, to warm weather cities they'd go down to to Puerto Rico or or Cuba or uh, and and play baseball there they'd go out west to california uh, it was was very big on the barnstorming scene um, and that was a point of contention too um, you know a lot of people had said you know, use Ty Cobb as an example and not, um, you know, Ty Cobb was somebody who wasn't allowed to play against uh, black major league players during his career. Um, But, you know, he'd play the whole season against white people and then go down to Cuba and play against, you know, African-Americans and and all these diverse teams and and things of that nature. So barnstorming was important. Um, Dizzy Dean had had a comment in my book, uh, or not, you know, an old comment that I researched where he said some of his best games that he ever played were on the barnstorming tours against Negro league teams. Um, And, you know, all the estimates I read was the Negro league teams won about two thirds of the games against the major league baseball all-stars that they played. Um, And, you know, a lot of that was attributed to, to that meaning more to them. You know, they wanted to prove that they could compete, that they're on that level and they certainly were. Um, And that's not to say the games didn't mean anything to the white major league teams. They absolutely did. But yeah, it was just, just an interesting type of thing. And and one other quick note uh, that I I found was an interesting story. Uh, I found a comment from Pepper Martin, the old player. Um, And, you know, he had, he had a great world series where he was running the bases like a uh, mad, mad madman and stealing bases, stealing home, hitting runs, all these things. And he said, um, he got the inspiration to play that way by watching the Negro Leagues. Mm. Um, and, you know, he took that to the World Series with the Gas House Gang and and just dominated.
0: So just so people don't misunderstand, I mean, I think sometimes when people hear about this, they might liken it to, for instance, modern-day tennis exhibitions where you have uh, maybe – Retired players that are playing each other, but it's not a real tournament. I mean, it's a real match. I mean, they keep score, but it's obviously done with a great sense of fun, uh, and 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 mostly to entertain the crowds. And often the players are kind of conducting themselves in in much sort of sort of lighthearted fashion than were it Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or something. I don't think we're talking about that here or maybe maybe not nearly to the same extent i mean these were real games i mean they didn't affect standings or anything like that but i mean they were out there really competing i mean this was this was not just for fun i mean or 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 was it mostly just for fun
1: no it was it was especially the 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 negro league teams against the um against the major league teams those those are those games are absolutely as competitive as can be. Uh, you know, there were definitely some aspect of it where, you know, Satchel Paige would get billed as, you know, Satchel Paige and his All-Stars are coming to uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, to play, uh, play the local semi-pro team. And, you know, Paige might pitch a couple innings and they might have a little fun and, and things like that. I would certainly play to win. But especially when you put Satchel Paige on the mound on one team and Dizzy Dean on the mound on another team, that's there's no way that that game isn't going to be super competitive with with all guys out there trying their hardest to win. These were, those are highly competitive, highly entertaining games, and uh, something you know you wish you had a time machine that you go to go back and watch. Oh
0: it. no, kidding! The other thing that's interesting, of course, is that uh, this was not something that necessarily Major League Baseball entirely favored, and you you talk about Commissioner Landis. Uh, Issuing a rather stern decree, uh, what was the fear uh, from at least some in Major League Baseball in terms of the effect that barnstorming might have on Major League Baseball itself?
1: Uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. And, that, and uh, Commissioner Landis, when he was brought in to um, to clean up Major League Baseball after the um, after the White Sox scandal, one of the other things he wanted to clean up was his what his, his perceived notion of uh, how barnstorming cheapens Major League Baseball. That was always his public point of contention. So, um, they, you know, Babe Ruth. All right? Babe Ruth liked to go around and barnstorm as much as anybody else uh, in the offseason. Uh, Judge Landis said, in his opinion, the World Series should be the final event for high-level baseball. You know, anything that's played beyond the World Series is going to cheapen the World Series. You know, everybody on the that year is playing for the world series. And if there's baseball after that, then, you know, what, what's the world series. So he, he, you know, he came in and he tried to put his foot down in 1921 and told Babe Ruth and um, you know, you can't go out and barnstorm or you're going to get suspended. And you know, whether Babe Ruth didn't think he would get suspended or didn't care whatever the story was, Dave Ruth told judge Landis pretty much, you know, you can go kick rocks, and he went off and barnstorms and, and got himself a six-week suspension for the uh, for the next season. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, he was against it. Eventually, it got lightened up a little bit, um, and that that's where you know the dizzy dean tours and, and things like that came into play. Uh, but yeah, at first, um, Judge Landis was very much against uh, the barnstorming tours.
0: We're speaking with Rocco Constantino, and we're talking about his book, Beyond Baseball's Color Barrier, the story of African-Americans in Major League Baseball, past, present, and future. And uh, the bit about barnstorming is, is just a sidelight, but a fascinating one in a much uh, wider story about uh, African-Americans ultimately reaching the major leagues. Um, you tell us that although officially... The history of blacks in Major League Baseball began on April 15th, 1947. That, in fact, we, are, we can talk about a, a couple of interesting figures from much earlier who uh, perhaps deserve at least a footnote in this history, beginning with an intriguing man by the name of William White, which, uh, whom you call a forgotten footnote. Uh explain why he is at least a brief presence in your book and in this story.
1: Oh well, he, he's a fascinating character. Um uh, and, and just just his, the idea that he, he played one game in ni- in eighteen seventy nine, the Providence grades, they had a very good first baseman by the name of Joe Stark, famous guy back in the eighteen hundreds. Um he got hurt and he missed a few weeks. Um The Providence Grays went to the local college, which is Brown University. They said, "Hey, could we borrow your first baseman to come play first base for us?" Because Joe Stort got hurt. Uh, So uh, that was William White. So he went. He played one game. He actually did really well. It's it's very well documented in the newspapers at the time. And then that was it. He disappeared. You know, Joe Stort was out uh, for a few weeks, and but you know they used a different replacement. So that was in 1879, and nobody thought anything about it. All the way in 2004, uh, Sabre was doing a study on the very early baseball players and their lineage and heritage, uh, and they found out that Will White's mother was uh, half black, half white, and his father was a slave owner. So Will White's mother was a fellow by the name of William White's servant. Um, So this fellow played in um, 1879, in 2004, it was discovered that he was one-quarter uh, black. Uh, now, at the time, um, that would have disqualified him. I wouldn't say disqualified him for Major League Baseball, but he would have had to abide by the laws of segregation. All right? in, where he, you know, in the country at that time, if you were, had any percentage of lineage in Af- of African Americans, you had to you know, abide by those segregationist rules. So what's not clear is if he was found out to be African American and told not to continue. Um, you know that 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 I couldn't find any positive research on that, and, and nobody did. But um, but very interesting. And the thing, of it was, Will White lived his white he lived his life as a white man. You know, he identified himself as being white in the census. Um, it was against the law of that time. So technically he was sitting there lying and telling everybody he was a white guy. And, you know, so it's tough to really say that that was the first ever African American player because they say he identified himself as white and he had a lighter complexion. Um, But then that led into Moses Fleetwood Walker, who, um, you know, darker complexion. he played one, one year and he had more he was more of a famous player and he was the last african american player um, to play before jackie robinson right he and his brother weldy played in um, uh in 1884 for
0: toledo this reminds me of 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 one thing that uh is uh, t- takes us back to jackie robinson in 1947 you quote uh, the headline of a major newspaper a, a couple of days Uh, before Jackie Robinson's first day with the Dodgers and the headline reads uh, the first uh, black player or something in modern Major League Mm -hmm. Baseball which of course of course pointed to the fact that perhaps in not-so-modern Major League Baseball there had been players black players and indeed Moses Fleetwood Walker would have been one of them and probably the the greatest of them explain Mm -hmm. about the vote that was taken in 1887 that changed the picture so drastically?
1: Yeah, that that 1887 was a really pivotal year in all of this. Um, And um, so Moses Fleetwood Walker was, um, he was on the 1884 Toledo Blue Stockings. Um, So in 1887, uh, in the International League, there were African-American players playing in the minor leagues. Uh, Weren't, you know, they weren't, nobody played, after uh, Walker did um, for the Blue Stockings. But anyway, down the line in 1887, more and more African-Americans were being accepted into minor league baseball you know, with the chance that they could move up to the major leagues. And, uh, you know, there was nothing against it at the time. There was no gentleman's agreement in place. There were certainly grumblings that these African-Americans are good and they're coming into our, uh, you know, the white people's game and taking their positions and stuff like that. So in 1887, the International League had 10 teams. Uh, four of them were integrated and six of them were all white. Uh, the league put together a vote to um, whether they should ban future contracts for black players, um, and it passed. The six all-white teams voted in favor of uh, banning African-Americans, and the four segregated teams, of course, banned, or voted against it. So that, that formally went into place uh, in 1887 in the International League. And, um, and then other leagues started to either adopt that rule in writing or just in practice you know, the other way Major League Baseball did with the Gentleman's Agreement. Um, so, so that was interesting, and a lot of that spurred from, from Cap Anson and his very big protesting against competing against Moses Fleetwood Walker Um, He had two very, very visible instances where he flat-out protested and said, I'm not playing a baseball game against Moses Fleetwood Walker. Um, And and those were very interesting. What was interesting to me was the newspapers at the time covered this very well. Um, One year it was a scrimmage. It was before Walker was in the major leagues, and Cap Anson's team was going to have a – uh, exhibition game against Fleetwood Walker's team and, and Anton didn't know at, the t- at first that you know there was an African American on the team um, and when he found out he said he was going to protest and not play uh, and actually he, he didn't find out until his team was there ready to play the game so the manager, Moses Walker's manager at the time was a fellow by the name of Charlie Morton and he actually was going to arrest Fleetwood Walker for the game. He had sore hand he was a bare hand catcher um so he was going to sit this guy out but when anson you know made a big stink about protesting that he wouldn't be wouldn't be playing against african americans uh charlie morton put fleetwood walker right into the lineup he was going to sit out that day but he said forget it go play center field you know i'm not backing down to a bully like cap anson Mm -hmm. um and then yeah, you know, there's negotiations, and eventually they threatened to withhold. They told Anson, "If you don't play the game, you're not getting your share of the gate, and you know you're you're losing out on all this money." So the game was played. Um, a year later, similar situation, but this time Fleetwood Walker was in the major leagues and had to play against Anson. Um, there was a threat of a protest, but then Walker was legitimately hurt. He had missed a few weeks, and that that game came within that time frame, but. There's all these people like Charlie Morton that, that stood up for things way back when um, that I think should deserve recognition, and um, I was happy to include them in my book.
0: Right. And, of course, uh, we, don't, we really don't have time to get into it, but you also tell a really sad, frustrating story of a, of, um, a team called the Syracuse Stars. And mm-hmm. when some Southern players joined the team, they end up really sowing some discontent when it came to the uh, a, a new black pitcher named Rob Robert Higgins. And these Southerners on the Syracuse Stars are actually willing to kind of sabotage their team and their efforts on the field in order to make this gifted young black pitcher look bad. I mean, it's just so dispiriting to think about uh, the length to which some of these racists would go in order to uh, try to preserve what they saw as the sanctity of the white man's game. It's just hard to read about that and to think about what it was like for a player like Robert Higgins to endure that.
1: Yeah, it was. And thank you for bringing that up. You're right. It's a little bit of a lengthier story, but just, I mean, he was a very talented pitcher. And when he went out there to pitch his first game, you know all his white teammates just like you said intentionally made errors. They, he lost the game twenty-eight to eight, uh, and it was twenty-one unearned runs. Um, so you know, and again, uh, I was very impressed with the, the newspaper coverage at the time, where they they called out those players. They actually, you know, labeled them as 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 Ku Klux Klansmen. Um, it was pretty uh, pretty intense coverage at the time, and. and um but you know, very sad, like you said too, that people would go to those kind of lengths to keep African Americans out of the
0: game. We're speaking with Rocco Constantino about his book, Beyond Baseball's Color Barrier: The Story of African Americans in Major League Baseball, Past, Present, and Future. Your book, of course, explores extensively uh, the the, the lead up to uh, to Jackie Robinson's uh, entry into the major leagues in 1947, and one of the things you say is that even well before Jackie Robinson, uh, it would have made such a difference for Major League Baseball if they would have permitted black players into their ranks. They were desperately needed during and after uh, the Second World War. And there were just too many people standing in the way. Of course, it is Branch Rickey who makes such an enormous difference. Uh Tell our listeners what it is important for us to know about Branch Rickey and the way in which he went about uh, integrating Major League Baseball.
1: Yeah, I, I think Branch Rickey really, um, you know, was a visionary with this. It wasn't I, – I, I mean, I know he wanted, you know, was fine with making a social statement about it and everything like that, but I, he saw it as a way to improve his team and to um, – and to put a competitive Dodgers team out on the field and give them a great advantage. Um, he was kind of the first person, not just to stand up to, uh, judge Landis, but to stand up to owners, uh, because it was ownership that, that was really keeping them out. So, uh, you know, Ricky, it was interesting, uh, because he was with the St. Louis Cardinals all those years before the Dodgers. Uh, and he, uh, he never integrated the game at that point. Um, so one of the things I, I kind of found through my research was St. Louis was kind of, you don't really think of them maybe as a southern team and um, uh, as far as today's modern baseball, but they were the city that had the southernmost views. So, you know, they were the most segregation, the most racist. It wasn't anything like the Deep South uh, necessarily, um, but Ricky being in St. Louis, it was not the time and place to integrate, um, as far as, you know, social acceptance. So, um, you know, and that was made pretty clear in the research that I did. Uh, and even in the Wendell Smith, um, Pittsburgh courier survey that was mentioned. Uh, but then when he got over with the Brooklyn Dodgers and, um, you know, some social aspects of uh, American society kind of started to fall into place. Um, I found a lot of the, so, you know, I guess battle cry for integration was, you know, African-Americans are okay to go sacrifice their lives for the country in world war two, but they can't play major league baseball. And, you know, it just didn't make much sense. So, um, you know, there was really a big push to integrate um, and, you know, somebody was thankfully going to do it. And, and Branch Rickey was the guy. So, um, you know, you, you give him all the credit in the world. He just, Brooklyn uh, in the 1940s to him was was the right place in the right time, and the um, the atmosphere of the country was ripe for it. And and you give him credit; he took advantage. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, Wendell Smith, who conducted that Pittsburgh Courier survey, you know, seven eight years prior, uh, was one of the people who recommended Jackie Robinson as the person um, to integrate. He recommended him to Branch Rickey.
0: Hmm. I thought it was interesting too that Branch Rickey's original plan apparently was to actually bring in three black players uh, mm-hmm. rather than just one, so that there wouldn't be a single player in a sense bearing the brunt of responsibility. Uh, it's a, you know it's a plan that ultimately didn't didn't quite uh, be, uh, quite come true. But but I thought it, it, it says something about how much Branch Rickey thought about this and how anxious he was for this to be. As, as positive an experience and, and successful an experience as possible. Yeah, and that was
1: great. I mean, he um, he you know had had African American teammates on the Montreal Royals for Branch uh, with Jackie Robinson, uh, and that was one of his things. Um, Branch Rickey was very particular with his I guess machinations on how he was going to go about integration. He had a very meticulous plan that he kind of kept somewhat under wraps and part of that was having a couple of teammates with Jackie um, in the international league so he didn't bear the brunt of everything with the Montreal Royals. Um, and he did think that at the time he would be able to bring these these three gentlemen up all together, um, possibly for the start of the 47 season. It uh, didn't work out that way, but um, you know Jackie Robinson he went through. Some very tough times. Uh, obviously, you know, we all know about the tough times you went through with the Dodgers, but um, what was interesting to me was to hear how bad of an experience he had in spring training of 1946.
0: Down in uh, Florida.
1: Down, yeah, down in Florida. It was in the South, and, you know, it was really very discouraging to him, and, you know, he eventually ended up with the Montreal Royals. They treated him great. Um, and he had a couple other African-American teammates, so that was good. Um, and that team ended up being one of the greatest minor league baseball teams in the history of the sport. So, you know, he was absolutely beloved in Montreal, and that kind of uh, rejuvenated his experience there and catapulted him towards 47.
0: By the way, you you make mention of the fact that uh, Branch Rickey did a great deal of, of writing. I don't mean so much creative writing, but there is a real treasure trove that are collectively known as the Branch Rickey Papers which apparently you explored and one of the things that we learned there is of the attitudes uh, of the attitude of one Clay Hopper who was manager mm-hmm. of the Montreal Royals and at least at the outset a staunch racist and uh, it's interesting how Branch Rickey in a sense uh, kept some of this information about Clay Hopper shielded from the public and it's only when we look into the branch Ricky papers that we realize what Clay hopper was like and how rough life must have been for Jackie Robinson and having to deal with him uh, in in the early going
1: yeah and and that's clay hopper's another really interesting character I mean he he, he was Ricky's uh, I mean uh, Jackie Robinson's master as you said I mean he he literally as according to the branch Ricky You know, is essentially a journal of of his career, fascinating information. Uh, But he, you know, paraphrased Clay Hopper, went up to Branch Rickey and said, African-Americans aren't even considered full human beings. Why are are you putting them on my team? Um, I mean, something as uh, insane as that, you know, I just, it just blows my mind. That was the thinking from somebody back then. I mean, he was born in 1902, but that's no excuse for for thinking that way. But to have that strong of an opinion uh, in the following spring in 47, you know, there was a lot of whispers that Jackie Robinson wasn't being given a fair chance in Brooklyn. Um, They were kind of changing his position around with the Brooklyn Dodgers. They had him at first. They had him at second. They weren't making a decision one way or another. Uh, And then it ended up being Clay Hopper that stood up to the Brooklyn Dodgers and said, hey, you know, I love Jackie Robinson. He's a great player. He could play in the major leagues right now. You need to make a decision on him and stop jerking him around. Is he going to be in the major leagues? Is he going to be back on my team? Is he going to be first base, second base, whatever? Um, So he was the guy that really went to bat. And, And, you know, it was surprising. I went through and read. That did, you know, newspapers for every day through that 1947 spring training to try and get a feel what was going on. And there was a lot of sentiment that, that like, you know, this whole Jackie Robinson thing is just for show. You know, you had never intended to call him up anyway, all this kind of stuff. So it was really interesting to see somebody so, I mean, racism was so entrenched in, in Clay Hopper's life. And in just a year of getting to know Jackie Robinson, to have that that feeling flipped around was really spoke of what kind of person Jackie Robinson was.
0: Absolutely, and of course, uh, we also learn about some of, of the other uh, players who were tremendous supporters of Jackie Robinson, including Pee Wee Reese and Archie Vaughn and uh, Ralph Branca, and and of course, uh, in the wake of Jackie Robinson. Uh, enter, among others, the legendary Satchel Paige, but also then a whole new generation of great black players, especially Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Ernie Banks. I appreciate that in your book, you kind of chart for us the pace of integration, uh, that is of, of various teams following in uh, the example of the Brooklyn Dodgers and, uh, and, and allowing integration to occur. Uh, team by team, painstakingly through the course of the decade. Uh, the last team to integrate, the Boston Red Sox. Can you mm-hmm. explain uh, what the issue was there with the Boston Red Sox and why they were so reluctant to uh, to join?
1: Yeah, they were, um, you know, it was, I, I believe, came down to, to Tom Yawkey and, and Joe Cronin, um, you know, and again, I, I, you don't know where to place all the blame because it's hard to know where the power was. It was clearly with the owners. The owners were the most powerful people. They had, you know, even above Kenneth Landis, I believe the owners had more power with him. Um, so, you know, to lump Joe Cronin in might be a little tough, but he was Tom Yawkey's right-hand man. Um, and they were just, it was out of pure racism. They didn't want to integrate. Boston wasn't. Again, a town that they, they thought, a city that people thought would really um, be accepting of that. Um, it turned out not to be true because there ended up being a very big groundswell that, that Boston needed to integrate, um, and, um, it's, you know, the, and the Red Sox suffered. I mean, you, you really saw it. The teams that were the quickest to integrate were, um, were the ones that succeeded throughout the 40s and 50s and did really well. Uh, the teams that weren't, you know, aside from the Yankees, who had Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and, you know, everybody out there. Um, well, not Mantle, but anyway. Um, the teams that were slower to integrate were, were you know, suffered. Their their products suffered on the field. Um, and another thing I thought was interesting, too, was, you know, you mentioned that, that Willie Mays, Hank Aaron generation. Um, when these teams were integrating, um, You know, even with Jackie Robinson, they were a little bit older. They weren't these 21-year-old young stars coming into the game. Um, They were integrating with Negro League veterans and and older guys and bit players and relief pitchers. Um, You know, it really wasn't until that second generation of people, the Willie Mays, the Hank Aarons. You know, Larry Doby was young when he came in, um, where the young superstars were, were coming into the sport. Um, you know, you mentioned the Red Sox. Uh, they integrated. They had a chance to sign both Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and, and passed on them, you know, before they even integrated. Uh, and instead, they, you know, they integrated with Pumpsy Green. And no offense meant towards Pumpsy Green at all, but he wasn't Hank Aaron or Willie Mays. Um, you know, so the, the thought there is the Red Sox didn't necessarily want to all of a sudden bring in a young African-American superstar and have everybody saying, you know, what took you guys so long? Mm. It's almost like they, they want wanted these players not to succeed.
0: Your book, of course, goes on to chronicle um, just some of the amazing black uh, baseball players uh, who have played over the generations and uh, left such a deep and lasting uh, impression on Major League Baseball. But your book is also about the present day and the future and the fact that we do not see the percentage of black players in the major leagues that we once did. If I remember the numbers correctly off the top of my head, uh, at its height, we would be talking about just over 17% of major league baseball players being black. And then at some point, that number began to fall. And it's now dramatically lower than that that higher number. Uh, explain the factors that you think are are at play, and if that is uh, something that we should be uh, concerned about.
1: Yeah, that, that's very true. And and you know, whole once the game got integrated, as far as you know, in my book, I, I did it chronological order. Um, Once we got through integration and the whole league is now integrated through 1955, um, you know, from the next part of that through the mid-50s all the way up through the mid-90s, you know, I looked at the baseball boom of of African-Americans and really the glory years were the, uh, the 70s and 80s. You know, you had Mays and Aaron were still going even though they were at the end of their career, but. Joe Morgan was coming into into uh, his own there, and you had Bob Gibson. I mean, there was just no shortage of African-American legends at the time. Um, and participation was, was good. Participation, like you said, among African-Americans from about the early 70s all the way up through, uh, coincidentally enough, right through the player strike of 1994. So about a 20-year span, it was pretty consistent that 16 to 18 percent of Major League Baseball was made up of African American players. Um, it was also pretty consistent that uh, Latino players only made up about 11 percent of the league through that, that timeline. Um, and what you kind of saw start to happen um, right after the player strike was from 94, when, uh, when they came back in 95, all the way straight through for about you know, a 15-year stretch the number of African-Americans in major league baseball declined every single year. And it was never a huge drop off, but it was always, you know, a percentage or a half a percentage. And it just kind of added up over time until you got to about 2015 or so where um, it was only about six and a half percent of major league baseball was African-American. And, you know, at the same time, Latinos, Uh, participation was increasing, Asian participation, um, you know, Latino participation was around 30%, a little bit less. So mathematically, you'll, I don't think you'll ever get back to the way it was in the seventies. You know, baseball is such a global sport now that things, you know, things are going to be more spread around as far as demographics. But I, I look at the year 2000, right. That's not that long ago. Um, you know, it's, it's a gen, you know, 20 years. There's uh, At that time, there was 60 percent white, 13 uh, percent black and about 25 percent um, Latino. So that, that's something I think that's reasonable, that, that percentages can get back to that, that area. Um, what's encouraging is, you know, in the last five years, it's actually started to tick up again, the, the participation among African-Americans. Um, it's back up to about 8 percent Um, It hasn't declined in any of the past, I think, five or six years. Um, So that's great. And then there have been a number of um, top five and top ten draft picks that are African-American. So I think you're starting to see that trend reverse. I think you're starting to see the fruits of, you know, 15, 20 years ago when, when people recognized that this was a problem and started to make efforts to change it. I think that's starting to bear some fruit now. So. Um, I'm encouraged. By the way, it's it's gone, and and the way the trends are going. So, hopefully, it continues.
0: Very good. Well, in the meantime, you've you've done a great job of of telling a really important and complicated story, very very well, very very clearly. And again, although we didn't have much time to uh, to talk about it, uh, your book includes uh, a chronicle of all kinds of of really important and colorful and and dynamic uh, black players who have been such an important part, really an indispensable part of Major League Baseball for such a long time. The book, again, is titled Beyond Baseball's Color Barrier, the Story of African Americans in Major League Baseball, Past, Present, and Future, published by Roman and Littlefield and the author Rocco Constantino. Rocco Constantino, congratulations on a great book. I really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you on The Morning Show. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I learned so much myself researching and writing it. I absolutely loved it and really, really happy with the finished product.
0: And with good reason. Thank you again for being part of today's Morning Show.